This is a podcast by The Straits Times and Money FM 89.3. Time now to catch up with Leslie Lopez, regional correspondent for The Straits Times. Leslie, good morning. Good morning, Elliot. Good morning. Good morning, Marathi. Are you ready? Are you ready, Leslie? November 29th. <laughs> it's coming. Yeah, certainly making certainly making plans soon, soon. What I'll was it? There. Whiskey and suji cake, the two of you? A lot of yes. Things. A lot of things. <laughs> it's been years huh, of making plans. <laughs> yes, that's true. Yeah, so we are talking, of course, about uh, Malaysia's VTL announcement with Singapore. The possibility later on that we will discuss of ASEAN recognizing Myanmar's national unity government as well. So let's start off by talking about the thing that we're all quite excited about taking flights between Changi Airport and KLIA without quarantine. Must emphasize that from November 29th. We have Malaysians and businesses there reacting to the issue. What exactly have they been saying, Leslie? Well, you know, there's much elation on both sides with this new quarantine free air travel. Many will get back to see their families, particularly Malaysians in Singapore and Coming ahead of the end of the year celebrations, Christmas and New Year, there's certainly a lot of things to be excited about. So there's a lot of travel plans in the works. We've already seen spikes in ad ticket sales, you know, and this is one of the world's most busiest routes for a long time. So that's going to come back to some kind of normalcy, you know, but I think a lot of concern is about how to get the economies jump-started. Now, clearly, this will help the aviation sector. But until land and ceilings return to some kind of normalcy, particularly like, you know, for, for the link between Singapore and Johor to allow for the flow of goods, material, labor, which need to be regularized, that is something that I think more people are having their eyes on because, you know, as we know, the economy is all, all vital, right? In, in places like this. Yeah, actually, I, I, I was curious about that, Leslie. I mean, what what is it going to take to turn this air travel lane to a land travel lane? And, you know, you can't just, like, have a land travel lane from Singapore to KL. You don't want to bypass JB, right? What is it going to take here? Well, I think, you know, these are all baby steps, right? I mean, clearly, the the move to, to do the air travel link is, is a major step. Is a major step where you know both countries have have agreed that they would have it would be quarantine free. So clearly, there is a lot of there had to be quite a lot of confidence building measures between the two to to come to some kind of agreement that their medical responses to the pandemic, you know, are kind of on the same page. You know that where they can allow for this quarantine free measures. So I think that's a huge step. So the thing is that how quickly. This graduates into making uh, land and sea travel quarantine free too remains to be seen. But you know, we re- I think there's there are reasons to be hopeful for this. Mm. Certainly, we hope that the two countries can come together to harmonize certain things as well, just as they yeah. take steps individually, yeah, so that that harmony in travel can return at some stage. Now, something else that's making headlines, Leslie, I understand. Malaysia's High Court ordering the government to immediately return assets, which were seized from former Prime Minister Najib Razak and his wife, Rosma Mansour, their three children and several other people. Walk us through this particular headline. What justification did the High Court give for this? Well, you know, this clearly has rankled many, and depending on which side of the of the coin that you sit on, what's happened is that Assets 
of people linked to Najib and those suspected to be to have ties with the one MDB fair. And among these people include uh, fugitive uh, businessman Joe Lowe's parents too. His mother's house was seized in Penang, and I think about four or five bank accounts, you know, were also frozen, you know, when the government made this move. But this went to trial, and the the defendants have argued, and clearly this is something that the courts apparently have have accepted, is that while those monies cannot be explained, the prosecution failed in linking that these monies that were associated with these assets came directly from from 1MDB or illegal moves of 1MDB. So this is something, you know, it's it's a complex thing and largely uh, defense use in terrorism-related financing models. It's called the predicated offense. That means an offense had to be committed. You had to prove that an offense was committed in, in obtaining this illegal money and linking them to the assets. So this is in uh, very, very complex money laundering cases. So the courts appear to have leaned in favor of the defense in this case. And I think the problem here is that some argue in Malaysian legal circles that many of these charges were were hastily, you know, hastily put together without proper, more detailed, thorough investigation and gumshoe work. So this is the problem. But clearly it is controversy that this is coming and why is this happening at this point? This podcast is available on our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Like us and rate us. And now, back to our podcast episode. Sticking with Malaysia for a bit, we've got a Malacca election. There's polling happening on November 20th, and we understand that it's likely to be at least a three-cornered fight. The big three political coalition is going to face off uh, on November 20th. Apparently, Amno had rejected working under the flag of the Parikatan National Alliance for this election. How does this, I don't know, potentially throw a bit of a curveball for both parties? And where does the Pakatan Harapan, led by federal opposition leader Anwar Ibrahim, where does he stand where this election is concerned? The Malacca election is something that is going to be closely watched because it is being seen as a barometer for the general election, which could take place as early as the first quarter of next year. And that's like more, more than a year ahead of schedule, actually. One interesting aspect about this upcoming contest is that the country's dominant Malay parties will be battling out each other, as you pointed out, without any real alliances. And this will, I guess, tell us which way the Malays are leaning after you know, a rocky three years of politics following the general election in 2018? Or do they live with the, lean with the urban Malaysians to a frustrated politics? So the long-established Avno is using this election to test strategies, how it can reach its potential supporters. Party officials tell me that, you know, there are a lot of analytics and a number crunching by a new elections war room that will be expanded after this election to prepare for a general poll. So a lot of experimenting is going on. I think the other interesting thing is that how will the disgraced Prime Minister Najib Razak, because he's been campaigning here 24-7 actually since polling was announced, and he clearly is trying to, I wouldn't say make a comeback, but here really trying to, he's fighting for his political life. If Amno wins big, he can claim credit to the victory and suggest that you know his brand remains intact despite the conviction on the on the one MDB. So that's on Najib's side. 
for Anwar and PKR and his Pakatan Harapan coalition, the question will be whether the Malays are, are willing to give them a second chance, you know, after the 2018 election. So a lot of questions in this all-important Malacca, Malacca uh, state election, which is which is shaping up to be a kind of dress rehearsal, actually, for the for the big event. Mm, for sure. And I hope that there are lessons being learned as well so that the big event can be even better, more enhanced too. Let's move away from that part of the region. Let's talk about Myanmar, something that we have been asking you on and off about. Apparently right now, Bill Richardson, former US diplomat turned global troubleshooter, has said that he believes Myanmar's junta is actually open to working with the world on humanitarian relief, possibly more. And he said this after quite a rare visit. At this point, how reliable would you say are his claims on Myanmar's junta actually opening up to the world and to work on humanitarian relief? Should this be believed? Well, you know, Richardson's visit has stirred a hornet's nest. He, you know, he cuts a controversial figure. And it's no surprise that his visit and his meeting with senior junta leader, General Min Aung Yang, after which he said was productive, has attracted a very, very... A torrent of attacks, actually, from civil rights groups and NGOs. This is partly because I think somebody as prominent as Richardson representing the United States. This visit has kind of given an air of legitimacy to the military leaders who seized power in in February. You know, we've seen some really terrible after effects, bloody crackdowns, you know, civil unrest and all that kind of stuff. And nothing really has changed since then. So... I think we're in this place where some people in the international diplomatic community believe that greater engagement is is needed with the military junta that appears to be unbending, you know, in the face of widespread criticism, widespread international condemnation. So the only way forward is to get them to the negotiating table. Leslie, really appreciate your time today. Leslie Lopez, regional correspondent at The Straits Times. Thanks for joining us. You take care, yeah, Leslie. <laughs> Will do, Dubai. Thank you. Thanks, Alit. The Asian Insider Podcast channel is also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Like us and rate us.